0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. This is the third part of Resistance, Revolution, Democracy. Today's guest is Jonathan Pinckney. He's a program officer at the United States Institute of Peace and the author of From Dissent to Democracy, The Promise and Perils of Civil Resistance Transitions. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Erica Chenoweth, who really opened my eyes to the fact that civil resistance campaigns exist all around us, from Hong Kong to Belarus. People choose nonviolence, to fight authoritarianism. Even the United States has seen a wave of civil resistance after the death of George Floyd. But it's important to recognize civil resistance does not always bring about change. Nonetheless, many civil resistance campaigns have been revolutionary. And the choices of many people, not just the leaders, determines whether it will bring about democracy. Today's conversation goes beyond the insights of Erica Chenoweth to consider what happens after a dictator or an authoritarian regime is brought down. Last week, George Lawson mentioned negotiated revolutions often face a second challenge. They have to figure out how they plan to govern. Jonathan helps us with an answer. He explains why some civil resistance campaigns do bring about democracy while others do not. This is a discussion that I'm excited to share with you. It, it really brings together the past two episodes. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Jonathan Pinckney. Jonathan, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks, Justin. It's a a real pleasure to be here. Cool. All right. Well, really liked your book, Descent to Democracy. I really think it's going to help us kind of bring together the past two conversations I had with Erica Chenoweth and George Lawson. So just to kind of dive into the book real quick and kind of get to the heart of it, uh, there's a passage I really liked where you wrote, Often the nonviolent overthrow of a dictator is followed not by a smooth transition to democracy, but instead by violence, instability, and a return to dictatorship. Obviously, that's not the only direction that it goes, but it gets at the heart of the book, which is that um, a nonviolent transition or a nonviolent campaign can go multiple directions. So, can you explain a little bit about why some civil resistance campaigns succeed while others do fail?
1: Yeah, thanks. That is a, it's a really great question. And, and as you said, really at the, the core of what I'm trying to do here in the book. And I think really, you know, we'll get into my specific theory of the of uh, transitions initiated through civil resistance in particular a little bit later, but I think just the general principle and, and insight uh, that is not original to my work, but very much underlies my work, uh, is that ousting an old regime is really just the first step in a very complex set of steps that need to occur for a new democratic regime to be put in place. Um, as I said, I'm not the first to 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 make this insight. You know, this goes back uh, several decades uh, through the, the study of political transitions. Um, but just that that you know that that negative removal uh of what was in place before, you know, you need to have a lot of steps that go from you know breaking down something old uh to building uh something new. Uh, and that depending on sort of the, the particular way that the transition was initiated and the particular balance of power uh, that is in place um, throughout that transition period, uh, that can go you know, many, 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 many different directions. Um, I really like, uh, you know, there's a there's a quote from Hannah Arendt uh, that I used to, to open the book uh, that, you know, there's there's a bit longer, but at the core of it is uh, liberation is a condition of freedom uh, but it by no means automatically leads to it. So, of course, if you're going to get to a democracy and you, ha- you have to get rid of the dictatorship that is that is there, that is in place, um, but then there's a lot more work to do uh, once that initial step has been taken.
0: Uh, a side note about Hannah Arendt's book on revolutions. I just listened to it on Audible. They've got a new program that if you have a membership already, which I did, um, they've got like all this stuff that's now included for free with your membership oh, wow. and that's on great. revolutions is one of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was uh that, that was uh, really helpful for these uh, conversations to be yeah. honest with you. Um, I, I want to kind of take a step back in terms of um, the, the theory before we get into your specific findings, um, nonviolent resistance. And by the way, Erica Chenoweth talked a little bit about this. Um, The way that nonviolent resistance is more likely to bring about democracy than violent resistance. I I know that that's not a new finding. We've had people kind of uh, discovering that within the uh, civil resistance literature, um, which is much deeper than I ever realized, to be honest with you, until I started looking into this. I'd like you to just kind of explain to us why civil resistance is more likely to bring about democracy, because I think it's a good transition before we get into your specific findings.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, that's another really great question, and uh, as you said, uh, something that, that several scholars, uh, including Erica Chenoweth, who you mentioned, uh, have been have been looking at and and, and studying for for many years now. Um, to the extent where I don't think I'm, I don't think it's uh, too far afield to say this is is one of the sort of most robust, most consistent findings uh, in the democratization literature today. Um, that if you have this. Um, civil resistance and and sort of peaceful protests more generally as a part of a transition, then that transition is much more much more likely to lead to democracy. Now, across the literature, uh, people make different kinds of arguments uh, as to why you see this democratizing effect. Um, I uh in the book and sort of in my in my own study of it, I really emphasize I I would say one thing that has to do with the initiation of the transition, and then the second thing has to do with the shape that the transition takes or mechanisms that can carry you through the transition. Um, and it's helpful if you think about this in terms of sort of what the alternatives are to a transition initiated through nonviolent action. Um, and you know, I bucket these basically into sort of three broad sort of uh, three broad categories. So you can have a transition that's initiated through through nonviolent action, you can have a transition that's initiated primarily through violent action, through violent revolution. Um, or you can have a transition where the initiative is, is primarily coming from elites themselves. There's sort of el- an elite liberalization process, um, and these three categories really imply very significant differences in balance of power uh, at the beginning of a transition process. Who is a- who is actually able to make decisions that are going to shape the political incentives and institutions that are going to be that are going to be happening throughout the transition. Um, and so for instance, so let's so let's compare these three categories then. Uh if you have a elite-led transition, um, then elites are likely to use that balance of power advantage to set up institutions in such a way uh that you know whatever whatever new political regime comes out at the end of the transition, their own uh sort of interests are going to be significantly protected in that new regime. Um now, there's a. This may they they may ha- have some degree of democratization uh, simply because of the kind of broader international environment. There are a lot of incentives uh, around kind of not being sort of fully autocratic, but having at least some level of, of quasi democracy. Uh, but political elites that have been um, that have been benefited by an autocratic regime are highly unlikely to consider it in their political interest to establish truly representative democratic institutions. Um, and so, if they have that balance of power advantage, uh, then they're likely to use that uh, to lead to, at best, some form of kind of quasi democracy. If you have a transition that is initiated uh, by, say, violent revolutionaries who have, you know, successfully violently overthrown the state, um, and then are, and that then having you know, this like big advantage uh, to be able to to set up new political institutions and and political incentives, uh, again, I, I make the argument in the book and elsewhere that. These people; these are people who, obviously, they haven't had they haven't had power in the past. Um, but because of the the way that you know, being the leader of a violent revolutionary movement, uh, the kinds of people who are selected into that, um, and the way that waging a violent revolutionary movement uh, shapes your sort of view of the world, uh, they are also highly likely uh, to want to sort of use that balance of power advantage to to centralize power in their own hands. Um, and And not establish you know true representative democratic institutions
0: that that was actually one of the things that really caught me the most, mm-hmm. not just in your research but in others because it seems so intuitive the idea that hey, if you impose things on other people through violence, that you don 't quite have democratic tendencies right. but at the, but at the same time, you always think of things all right, I even had a conversation with my nine year old at the mm-hmm. dinner table <laughs> where he was ta- we were talking about. Uh, the idea, to be honest with you, we kind of framed it in terms of "don't fight you with your brother." But mm. my point is, is um,
1: <laughs> a good a good lesson.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. But the I, I, I explained to him that, well, did you know that nonviolent resistance is actually more effective than violence? You know, or I said, hey, do you think nonviolent or violent, you know, um, fighting back is more effective to topple somebody who's in, you know evil dictator. And he told me, Well, of course violent. And I said, Well, actually nonviolence. And he goes, Really? Well, how are you supposed to fight back? Mm. You know? And I I had to tell him a little bit about your guys' research, but it it makes a lot of sense to me because it's like, okay, if you're violent you can win, but when you do, you're not you don't have the right tendencies, you don't have the you know, right sympathies in mind you know, can you talk a little bit about how that connects back to maximalism, uh, a concept that you've got in your book, which can have different meanings behind it, but like what exactly you mean by maximalism and how that connects back to violence?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, so maximalism is uh, one of these challenges of political transitions uh, initiated through nonviolent action that I, I talk about quite a bit in the book. Um, to sort of summarize what I, what I mean by maximalism, Uh, I'm, I'm really talking about the degree to which, uh, action in a political system focuses on revolutionary goals and tactics, uh, rather than institutionalized, uh, or sort of normalized political channels. Um, so, you know, high maximalism means there is, there's a lot of focus on these sort of revolutionary all or nothing goals and sort of using, like, escal, and tactical escalation sort of as high as necessary uh, in order to achieve those goals, uh, whereas a system with low maximalism uh, is one in which political competition uh, is really regulated by the the rules and structures of the of sort of new political institutions.
0: But maximalism, um, like in a good example, are oftentimes those communist revolutions that talk about like the workers and talk about the people below, but oftentimes. End up with a result that isn't very democratic, like let's say China, let's say Russia, let's say Cuba. Is is that kind of what you're referring to as maximalism? I mean, just as one example.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so certainly a, a discourse uh, as is as is common in sort of communist revolutions, where you know they're saying the the only way to sort of achieve political change is to completely sort of overthrow another economic class and establish a dictatorship of the proletariat. Like that would certainly be um you know one kind of subcategory of a of a maximalist discourse um but you can think about it, i mean so so one case uh, in the context of of civil resistance transitions uh, that i i you know i talk about in the book uh, to some to some degree uh, and that i think works as a particularly good example is um sort of political competition in in Thailand over the last kind of decade and a half or so um where you had um a sort of a, a primarily nonviolent movement that sort of overthrew that country's prime minister in 2006, um, initiated a, a political transition. And, and really what very quickly happened there uh, is that uh, political competition in Thailand got very severely polarized into these, these two camps um, that uh, at least for a period of time were being referred to uh, by, by colors as well. You had sort of the, the reds who were sort of lower class, more rural, um, and you had the yellows who were sort of more urban middle class, um, middle class to upper class. Um, and anytime one of those two one of those two political groupings got any kind of political advantage, the other side would basically use whatever mobilization capacity they had, whatever to to more or less uh, shut down the country and prevent any like prevent any kind of you know political action from happening at all until until they were able to sort of reverse that. Um, and because, the, you know, the balance of power between these two sides, at least for about a decade or so, was, was relatively even. Uh, what you really saw there was it, basically politics never becomes normal. It's always in this kind of extreme revolutionary back and forth, uh, between one side or the other side. There's no kind of, uh, coming together around, okay, yes, we may have, uh, policy disagreements. We may have different visions of, of what the country should look like. Uh, but we all agree that we should have, you know, It is, it is legitimate for the other side to be in power for a period of time. Um, and, you know, we might push back against their policies, but we'll do it through political institutions. Instead, it's just this, you know, we're gonna do whatever it takes to, we're gonna do whatever it takes to get the other side out of power. Um, and, and yeah, that can look like polarization along political party lines. It can look like ethnic cleavages. It can look like, you know, economic class cleavages, um, depending on, Sort of what the pre existing political divisions uh, in that, like in a country when it enters a transition period, uh, happen to look like.
0: Now, there is a book written um, maybe a decade ago or something by uh, Gerard Alexander um, called uh, The Sources of Democratic Cons- Consolidation. And mm-hmm. in that book, he's got kind of a refrain that keeps coming up because he's writing about theory overall, but his specific example that he really knows about and that he keeps coming back to is the uh, uh, democratization of Spain. Mm -hmm. And he talks about uh, the difference between the civil war that ended up with the Franco regime versus the democratization after Franco's death. And the, the refrain that he uses is democracy with whom meaning that both sides kind of have to feel comfortable with each other to be able to have true democracy. And I've always felt that that was um, very insightful to mm. me in terms of thinking about it, because it's, it's not just what the regime wants to do or what parties want to do. It's literally how comfortable everybody is with each other to be able right. to work together. Right, right. So Yeah,
1: the, uh, I believe it was, I think it's the, the political scientist, Adam Zavorski, uh, who said that, you know democracy requires cleavage and consensus um that you need to have you need to have a diversity of political opinions uh, that are sort of considered legitimate uh, you have those like cleavages that get to be expressed in the political system uh, but you have consensus about the the rules of the game um that you know we we have we have disagreements um but we're going to fight we're going to sort of fight over those disagreements uh within an environment that enables us to uh, you know, to live to live together and to continue to compete in the future uh, in this political system
0: now, the conversation I had last week with George Lawson, one of the things that he kind of brings up is that when you have this revolution and you change who 's in power, the oftentimes those who are in charge in terms of a negotiated revolution, oftentimes it's such a large group of people with so many diverse opinions that they struggle to actually have an agenda to be able to put in place. And I find your findings interesting about low maximalism, because it seems to kind of run against what George was talking about a little bit. The idea that it's like, hey, you need to not be too extreme. But at the same time, loss. George uh, was talking about how, like, look, you got to stand for something though to be able to move forward. How do you strike that balance and can you give some examples where they were capable of doing that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a really great question. Um, so I would say, I mean, certainly a, a a maximalist agenda can be a very powerful mobilizing tool. Um, you know, I, I think about a case like the Arab Spring where, you know, the, the rallying cry was the people want the downfall of the regime. Um, and and it's really easy to get a lot of people on board. Um, with if, if you have an unpopular regime, everyone can sort of can, can agree to that. Um, I would say though that typically when it comes to sort of an agenda that's going to shape the future, um, high levels of maximalism maximalism tend to imply a fairly a fairly minimal agenda. Um, there isn't a lot of there typically isn't a lot of policy content. It's basically just we hate these other guys. We don't want these other guys in power, um, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get them out um whereas um in in cases where there ha- that have been characterized by relatively low maximalism um there is often a, a lot of very specific uh mobilization that goes into particular policy agendas um and the case that i think is probably best to bring up here and this is one that i, I have a chapter about in the book uh is uh, the revolution in brazil uh, in the 1980s uh where you know the the coalition that came together in the, the so-called Ya uh, or direct elections now campaign in 1984 was incredibly diverse i mean there were opposition political parties uh who had who, you know their interest was mostly in kind of uh changing democratic institutions but you also had you know you had women's groups you had land rights groups you had sort of community advocacy groups you had workers groups um all of which had their own kind of particular policies that they wanted they wanted to pursue um and they were very explicit in the period sort of before the transition began that, you know, we have we have more that we want here than just getting rid of the military. Um, you know, getting rid of the military is an initial condition uh, that we need if we want to, I mean, say in the case of the women's movement, we want to sort of uh, reform, uh, you know, reform laws so that they are more gender inclusive uh, here in Brazil. And so in the transition, in the sort of the transition period after, um, you know, after the, the, you know, there's the election of a, of a civilian president and they initiate the transition process. Um, that mobilization gets directed into, um, the, into Brazil's new constitution, basically, where you have these same groups that had kind of united over, we want to get rid of the military, but we have all of these other, you know, policy things that we want to change. Um, they then sort of, they shift into, okay, now we're going to push for these particular policy changes in the new constitution process. Um, And that ended up, for instance, in things like, you know, the the workers movement, which had been a really key constitutive part of the campaign against the military, then successfully gets things like the right to strike um, in, like, in the new Brazilian constitution. Um, So, whereas, you know, I think if you're, like, uh, if you're, if, like, all that is holding you together and all that is kind of getting your, like, sort of getting your constituents out in the street is we don't like the people, we don't like the people we don't like. Um, then you are likely to you are likely to struggle um, once you know once it's time once the transition starts and you're sort of at the negotiation table and you have to figure out what's going to happen next.
0: Now, Brazil is a case that I'm, I'm mildly familiar with. Like I've looked into a little bit. Um, one of the I, I looked through your sources quite a bit. One of them is from Wendy Hunter, and I hadn't read the source that you referred to from her, but um, there was a paper that really struck me that I read months ago called the normalization of an anomaly, the workers party in Brazil. Mm -hmm. It was in world politics. I, I, my understanding is it was, uh, I mean, world politics itself is just a big journal. Um, it's written like back in 2007. Um, what she wrote about in there was about how the workers party was so different from every other party because it actually had an agenda in place. Um, a lot of the parties in Brazil were very personalist mm-hmm. up until then, where it 's like somebody would create a party just so they could run for president or so they could run for Congress, very much like bolsonaro recently did the uh, The workers' party actually had a firm agenda, a very firm idea of what they stood for, and Lula continued to run for for president multiple times before he finally won. I'd like to know a little bit, how do you keep people mobilized um, after the fall in a case where you're trying to create those political parties, trying to create things? And in the case of the Workers' Party, is that a case where um, they had what you would consider maximalist policies, or would you consider that somewhere short of that?
1: Mm. Yeah that's a really I mean that's a really great question and I think yeah the workers party is a really is a really crucial part of that story of transition there and one thing that I would emphasize about the workers party specifically in the brazilian transition is that they chose they chose the role and very intentionally and very explicitly the role of sort of loyal like loyal opposition once the transition had started because the, I mean, large segments of, I mean, the, the political parties, as you mentioned, and, and kind of this broader, you know, political social coalition that had, you know, come together as the sort of pro-democracy movement were not as, you know, not as far to the left as the Workers' Party. Um, and on sort of, on sort of the left or, you know, the left, the left flank of the Workers' Party were, you know, people who were you know, Maoists, wanted to sort of wage armed revolution um, to to achieve you know a a a single party communist regime and uh people in the work like people in the workers party very much rejected that Uh, and and lula in particular sort of rejected that and said okay yes we are we're not getting everything we're not getting everything we want um but we're like our our way of getting that over the long term is through um I'm going to pronounce this word wrong because my Portuguese is, is basically non-existent, but um, they talked about um, concilia I believe is, is how you say it, which is you know conciliation as this really core principle of the different political forces uh, during the transition in Brazil that everyone sort of rec- like everyone kind of recognized you know we're not going get we're not going to get everything that we want um, but what we all share is an interest in creating these new political institutions that are going to normalize and regularize competition um so that we don't have another, you know, another sort of anti-democratic takeover uh by by the military at some point in the future. So I mean like you know, the fact that uh the first you know the first civilian president of Brazil uh after um you know, uh, starting in, starting in 1985 was, uh, Jose Sarney, who for basically up until, let's say, maybe about five minutes, uh, before he was a, a, democratizer, uh, was a very close ally of the military regime and kind of, you know, was one of these people who defected when he sort of saw the writing on the wall. And, you know, people who had been activists in the pro-democracy movement, uh, whether that was on the political side or in the, in the workers movement, you know, really did not like Jose Sarni for, for very good reasons um, but they said you know okay this is this is not you know this is not who we wanted to have in power he, he got in power because the the presidential candidate uh, died actually uh, just before he was supposed to be inaugurated Jose Sarni was gonna the, was the, gonna be the vice president but they said okay but we need to we need to adopt this attitude of concilia cow and like work together in order to, to make this transition process happen um which again, I think was not something that, not something that had to happen. Um, It was a a process of kind of intentional, intentional, you know, uh, intentional choice by leaders like Lula um, or, or others in the, in the pro-democracy movement.
0: James Loxton had an interesting piece in Journal of Democracy about five years ago called uh, Authoritarian Successor Parties, Mm -hmm. where he described how um, in the transition to democracy, oftentimes, those who were in power are able to inherit all of the structures that existed beforehand. They have a political party in place. Mm. They've got institutions in place to be able to mobilize the vote. Do you find that in some of these transitions, um, the holdovers from the authoritarian regime are capable of cleaning back to power and how does the mobilization of, of those who believe in democracy kind of um, uh, hold that in check when that occurs? Brazil is a good, good example. I mean, do you have any, let's go to a different example possibly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So yeah, I think this is something that the the article that you mentioned and there are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work out there that has emphasized both that this commonly happened and, and indeed making the argument frequently that, when you have successful authoritarian successor parties, that's actually that's a that's a sign that you're likely to have democratic consolidation over the long term, um, and I I paint that I I I would characterize that um, as you know this means that we're going like it, it can serve as the foundation for healthy political competition um, because you can have kind of one. You know, the, the pro-democracy, what, people who were sort of the pro-democracy movement on one side, people who were the sort of authoritarian elites, um, on the other side, and you can have sort of competition between those, between those forces that kind of, um, that goes forward and it creates kind of a, a healthy political environment in the future. This is the, I mean, this would be the case, um, across, uh, several, several of the countries that had kind of, uh, anti-communist revolutions in the 1980s and early 1990s, where, you, know, you had sort of a a reformed leftist movement that had previously been you know the the communist nomenclatura um but then they they sort of formed these they formed these kind of leftist parties that then engage in in old political parties. the
0: The flip side of that though is it feels like p i s and um and Fidesz, uh, led by Orban in that case. Part of their rallying cry, though, is that we want to get the communists finally out of the system, and they're now willing to cross the line to become undemocratic to get it done. Right. Um, I mean, is 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 that a? How do you kind of keep people focused on the end goal of hey, we we want to actually have a true democracy, rather than getting caught up in. The personalities or the um, or resentment from the past, right? Right.
1: No, it's a really it's a really crucial cr- crucial question, and and I think this in part gets us back to you know, the other part of what you were asking about, which was how does kind of ordinary people's movi- how can ordinary people's mobilization or civil society mobilization uh, affect uh, this you know the sort of return of authoritarian successors in order to ensure a more a more democratic long term. And and I think that is really I mean that is really a key thing uh, that I would that I would focus on uh, in terms of of response to both of these that you know political political elites uh, whether they have a history as kind of past authoritarian regime members um, or if they have a history as um, you know pro democracy activists as as Victor Orban very uh, or quite ironically does um, political elites uh, are going to respond to the incentives uh, that the that the system and public opinion in general, and levels of civic engagement and mobilization provide for that. Um, of course, this isn't, you know, this isn't a one-way street in either direction. Elites shape the way that people mobilize, and people and people's mobilization shapes the way that elites act. Um, but I think that that second piece of that two-way street, you know, the, the people's mobilization shaping elite incentives. Is something that has often been kind of downplayed in how we think about democratization, but that I think makes like an absolutely crucial difference um, in how you think about how these kind, like how these kinds of political actors behave. Um, they're going to do they're going to do what they have to do to stay in power, and if what they have to do to stay in power or to try and, to continue to struggle for political power is, you know, be be democratic, uh, then they will then they will do that. Um, and so that's why that's you know that's why grassroots pressure and popular mobilization that you know punishes defections from democratic norms is so like is so crucial um, because political elites can see that as a signal uh, that you know here are the like here are the boundary lines uh, that we that we can't cross. Um, another sort of you know so uh, another case that I have, a, I have a chapter about in the book is the, the transition in Zambia uh, in the 1990s, which I think is actually a, a good example, both of um, mobilization, uh, lack of mobilization, failing to punish these kinds of defections, uh, but then sort of later on establishing some guardrails. Uh, so uh, Zambia has a transition in, in 1991, I'll go into a ton of detail there, but basically the, the new president, who had previously been a labor activist, Sort of very quickly begins engaging in, in pretty anti-democratic and, and fairly corrupt uh, behavior along many different dimensions. Um, and there's very, there is very little public backlash to this. He, the president remains quite popular. Um, the opposition is, is, is largely unable to sort of mobilize people against him. Um, and he's able to sort of stay in power for 10 years. And there's a lot of kind of democratic backsliding during that period. In 10 years after he comes to power, though, uh, he and his supporters try to change the constitution of Zambia. Uh, so that he can run for a third term, uh, which is you know, previously not allowed in the not allowed in the new constitution, um, and this uh, serves as a like civil society responds to this by saying like no this is like this is unacceptable like you've you know you've done a lot over the last ten years and people haven't really responded to it, but when like when when sort of President Frederick chaluba the president of Zambia tries to make this change, then there's a really big public backlash, and to to the point that. Um, you know, many of his sort of closest advisors and uh, people who I, I interviewed for my work there said, you know, we, we had to tell him, like, you got, he got to stop doing this. Like, we, like, we're gonna, you know, we are all, we are all going to sort of lose power, um, if we, like, if we try and continue to push for this particular violation of democratic norms. Um, and it was, and it was this outside pressure by the grassroots that prevented them from doing that. If, if sort of, uh, the president had started kind of floating this third term idea and, Nobody had said anything, as had been the case for sort of previous examples of political corruption. Then, you know, he would have passed that and probably would have stayed in power until he died. Um, but because because sort of people at the grassroots really reshaped those political incentives, even the people who were sort of his closest supporters said, "Okay, we can't keep we can't keep doing this. Uh, we've got to you know we've got to sort of uh, accept our you know accept our losses and and move on."
0: Your field research in this book is impressive. I Thank mean, you. yeah, I mean for for real. Like you, uh, your examples and the field research you have uh, spans Zambia, Nepal, and Brazil—completely um, different continents, even. Uh, and and Zambia and Nepal, I mean, I've read news articles and maybe a paper or two on those places, but those are not highly researched. Places so really impressive in terms of the book. Um, I do want to kind of keep going down the the road in terms of mobilization because mm-hmm. um, I think that that is so impressive. I mean, it, it it strikes at something that is just so so obvious in democracy that we forget about, which is that democracy is supposed to be about the government of the people. So right. it just seems intuitive. Hey, you've got to have the people involved, right? Um, but oftentimes we talk about democracy and political science and everything, and and even history, and you get so caught up in what the great men are doing mm. that you forget about, hey, what's the role for everybody else? What I'd like to know is, what is it, when you talk about mobilization, high mobilization, can you give concrete examples of what exactly people are doing to be able to maintain that high level of mobilization, mm. especially because you just had the transition. Like you got out there, you risked your life. You you stood up to a dictator. We had, you have a, a, a peaceful transition over to, in a democratization. I would imagine that people just want to stay home now.
1: Mm.
0: What, what do they do? Uh, how, what what is their level of involvement and what is it, what type of mobilization makes the difference once mm. the, initial transition occurs
1: mm. yeah well so this question uh, this question of what kind of mobilization makes the difference I'm, I'm afraid i'm gonna have to punt on because that's uh that's new research that i'm working on right now um and i, I don't know the answer to that question yet um i have Sneak some, preview time
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i have some i have some thoughts about that um some sort of initial hypotheses but it's certainly like um it's uh, there's a a large research project that uh, my team at the US Institute of Peace is doing in in collaboration uh with the Democracy, Human Rights and Governance Center at, at USAID. And one of the questions we're looking into uh, is this exact question of, you know, what are the specific forms of mobilization that have occurred in these kinds of transitions? And what are the ones that are most effective um in you know keeping new elites accountable um, and continuing to push things towards democracy.
0: Let, let me ask you about this then. Um, one of the scholars that you reference in the book is Scott Manwaring from Harvard, mm-hmm. and he is well-known for his work uh, on party system institutionalization. That's a very formalized, institutionalized process for mobilization. How important is that towards maintaining democracy versus non traditional forms of mobilization um, in, in just your experience or, mm. or your gut, or is that something you're looking into?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, so the answer, I mean, I think the answer is that, that both are, are quite important. Um, you know, we've been talking about, sort of, uh, about maximalism quite some time, and, and the way out of maximalism is to have you know, new institutionalized uh, political avenues uh, through which you know, people can express uh, different political preferences and that have the you know, sort of general buy-in from the society. Um, and so popular engagement with new political institutions, whether that's, you know, the new party system um, or sort of new, like new governance structures, like that's, I mean, sort of, that that's certainly crucial for the long-term, for the establishment, consolidation, and then long-term stability of a democratic system. And, and I think that's something that, you know, a lot of political scientists who study political transitions have have emphasized for, for quite some time, including Scott Neumann. Um, you know, one thing that I, I think has been somewhat underplayed in a lot of the in a, lot, a lot of the literature uh, that has focused on democratic transition specifically, and not on to nonviolent resistance, is that extra-institutional mobilization um, is also often quite crucial um, in order to in order to sort of keep these transitions um, on track. So, an example that I would uh, you know one example that springs immediately to mind. Um, is the political transition in Burkina Faso, uh, beginning in 2014, um, where you, know, you had sort of a typical story across many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. You have sort of a president who's been in power for many decades. He's trying to change the constitution to extend his time in power. There's a there's sort of a, a big movement against that, and he's he's ousted from power, please the country. Um, then, of course, a, a big, messy transition process starts. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of institutionalized engagement from sort of ordinary people in Burkina Faso, but crucially, uh, about a year after the transition starts, um, elements of the military that had been kind of closest to the old president uh, stage a coup attempt um, and attempt and basically sort of attempt to reverse the transition. Uh, and what happens in response to that is a, a, a massive upsurge in people on the streets um, and and both people, people on the streets in public protests. And also general strikes and, and a, a wide range of other kinds of nonviolent tactics, um, and that is absolutely like that's absolutely critical in foiling that coup attempt uh, because because the pop because sort of the popular resistance is so huge, um, you know other factions of the military which were initially kind of quite sympathetic to the coup plotters then kind of well initially they sort of say well let's like let's let's step back and wait and see what's going to happen here, see if, you know, see if this is going to work out. And then as they see kind of mobilization continuing, um, they say, okay, well, it's going to, you know, if, if we try and join this coup, you know, this could lead, like this, you know, this is, we're going to have to, basically, we're going to have to kill a lot of people. It's going to be really bloody and we don't want to do, we don't want to do that. Um, the opposition is like really intentionally reaching out to the military at this time, saying like, you don't have to join the coup. Um, and so the rest of the military says, we're not going to join the coup. Um, and they sort of surround the capital and the coup plotters surrender. Um, and so, uh, so in Burkina Faso, again, you know, you have people who are sort of bought into these new transitional institutions, participation in that is little critical, but also, you know, the, the mobilization capacity from activists, social movements, and civil society, uh, to, to counter that kind of democratic backsliding. You know, not just through institutional avenues, but through really concerted action on the streets, uh, was really crucial in you know in bringing that uh, bringing that transition to shortly thereafter a free and fair democratic election um, and the you know the election of a of a new president.
0: That's the second example we've had for Africa so far. Hmm. It, it's a, it's a part of the world that is often ignored, partially just because it's so big that it's hard to wrap your head around. Mm. There's so many places, but also because it's, um, you know, underdeveloped still economically in many places, uh, that it gets, uh, people kind of assume that democratization isn't ready. Mm. Can, can you tell us, uh, like I had a conversation with Marlena Malk, um, and she had written a book that talked about, um, support for autocracy and support for democracy. And she found that there is incredibly widespread support for democracy in Africa. You've got a lot of experience around the world. What, what is your experience in terms of support for democracy in Africa and the prospects for further democratization there?
1: Hmm. Um, well, I mean, so I would I would first probably give the caveat that um, while, while I have done some some field research in Africa, I'm certainly not a, um, an Africanist scholar, um, and so it's not
0: completely fair. Completely yeah, fair. It's yeah, not,
1: not my not my specialty. So I just want to be uh, be respectful of the people who you know this is their kind of entire career, sort of studying and, and digging into these things. Um, I mean, that being that being said, I, I think. Um, I would, I would agree with what you said about how people often, um, underplay, like downplay the, the prospects for democracy in Africa. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of kind of neo-colonial attitudes, uh, that tend, that tend to do that. Um, but I think, you know, what the work of, you know, say people like, uh, Zachariah Mampili, um, who uh, has written quite a bit about the public protests in Africa have emphasized, uh, is that, I mean, Africa has been, a real center of nonviolent action that has led to real, like real, meaningful democratic change in contexts where sort of the sort of the, the structural factors behind the scenes would make it seem like that would be very unlikely. Um, and so, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of anti-colonial movements in Africa in the in the 1950s and 1960s are you know really powerful examples of of nonviolent action. Um, and then, you know, the in the 1990s, there is really, I mean, really across the continent, there is a, a wave of, of popular movements that push you know, for uh, democratic reforms away from, you know, what had typically been kind of single party, um, quasi-personalist dictatorships to sort of multi-party democracy. Um, Zambia, which is one of the cases in my book is, is one of these, um, but there are sort of many, many more uh, across the continent. And while, you know, uh, you know, many countries in Africa uh, after this, you know, after this like period of uh, contention in the 1990s, still, you know, obviously had many, many challenges that they were dealing with. The real, I mean, the real gains for democracy across those countries were really, really significant um, and really changed the way that political competition works um, in, in many of those countries. Um, and of course, you know, more recently, uh, we've seen uh, another kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many cases you need to have for a wave uh but there have certainly been you know many many movements across uh across sub-saharan africa um in sort of in recent years uh, that have led to really significant changes um, th- the one that probably uh comes immediately to mind and is really most powerful is the 2018-19 uh revolution in sudan uh which you know again ousted the regime of a of a genocide there uh that omar al bashir was uh, an incredibly brutal dictator who had been in power for many many decades um, and he was oust, you know, he's ousted through a really powerful, compelling sort of uh, nonviolent resistance movement. Um So I think you know uh, people who who discount uh, the capacity of, of people in Africa to achieve real meaningful change um, are really doing the people of, of, of Africa are doing people of you know, the many, many countries across Africa a really severe disservice um, because, There's been really significant political transformation uh, across many, many countries um, across the continent uh, over the last few decades.
0: You completely read my mind about Sudan. I was about to throw that in (laughs) and then you mentioned it. That's that's a really interesting example. Now, from a broader perspective in terms of that, there's a lot of people that sometimes see a democratization effort fail because uh, a regime is toppled. Egypt is a great example. Your regime is toppled and then it, things don't work out and it goes back to dictatorship and people go see it just, they they can't make it work in that specific country. And it it happens all over the world that people will say stuff like that. Um, There's an interesting quote in your book that says, uh, there is some evidence from other studies that even such failed campaigns may help improve democratic prospects. Um, I've seen that come up in a number of places, in very different places, this idea of um, instead of authoritarian legacies, thinking of things like democratic legacies Hmm. that efforts to democratize build upon each other over long periods of time. Have you read Sherry Berman's book that came out last year on uh, democracy and dictatorship in Europe?
1: I don't believe so, no. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, no. It's it's really cool because it walks through the history of democratization in europe and her point is is that there were so many false starts that occurred but they built on one another so that you could eventually find democratization Um, can you talk a little bit about how efforts to democratize um, through civil resistance especially can um, sometimes build on one another even if they fail once that they can come back a second time to succeed
1: yeah, certainly. That's a that's a really great uh that's a really great question. So I think, you know, the 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 finding that I'm referencing in that specific quote um comes from Erica Jenowitz's work, uh, where she finds that uh even a, a nonviolent resistance campaign that failed uh, is a statistically significant predictor of higher levels of democracy five years in the future. Um so that's the the specific uh the specific statistical finding that I, I'm referencing um there. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, uh, there, there's quite a bit of evidence uh, across sort of many different, uh, you know, many different scholarly literatures, uh, that really support this, uh, this contention that you're bringing up. Both that, um, even kind of failed pro-democracy efforts or even sort of, uh, elections that are, everyone knows they're rigged, everyone knows the government is going to win, but nevertheless, if you have a lot of those elections over time, people become very used to the idea that political power comes through elections, um, and that can kind of uh, that can kind of set the stage uh, for a for a future democratic transition. In the specific civil resistance space, um, I would emphasize that you know sort of engagement in civil resistance can build the skills and organizational networks uh, that can sort of empower society to push for change later on, even if it even if sort of the campaign fails in the short term. Um, so I just because it's a case that we haven't talked about yet, uh, Poland uh, springs to mind here, uh, where you know this, the Solidarity movement in Poland that ended up sort of initiating that country's transition to democracy in the late 1980s is quite famous, quite well known. Um, what is typically sort of less what is less known, uh, if you're not sort of a Eastern Europe or Poland specialist, is that you know there were there were many different attempts at mobilization. Prior to the emergence of the solidarity movement in the 1980s, that failed to achieve the same, you know, sort of the same degree of, of political change that solidarity did. Even solidarity itself, um, you know, has their sort of initial, uh, initial big mobilization in 1980. Um, they initially get some concessions from the government. They establish kind of this new organiz- independent organizational infrastructure. Uh, and then in 1981, uh, they are declared illegal and there is a huge crackdown on them. And their movement has to go, has to go underground. And it's really interesting. If you, um, you know, if you read sort of political science or sort of Polish observers in the 1980s, they talk about solidarity as this, like, example of failure. Uh, this example of like, oh, we were all really optimistic about change that was going to come because of solidarity. Um, but now what we've seen is that even a big movement like solidarity can't possibly overcome a regime like the Polish regime, which is, like, so deeply entrenched and has the support of the Soviet Union. But what was happening behind the scenes there is that um, the solidarity movement took the opportunity, you know, saw, saw their being made illegal as an opportunity to continue to kind of build their build their networks, build a political social alternative to the communist regime, and wait for an opportune moment. Um, so uh, the, the Polish dissident Adam Michnik um, has uh, a number of really excellent writings talking about. You know, this decision making process within the solidarity movement, uh, about you know, the choice that, you know, we're going to go underground. Um, we're going to try and provide alter- alternate sources of information so that people aren't buying into government propaganda. We're going to provide a political structure that can be kind of intact, uh, for, you know, for when we can rise back to the surface again. And we're going to try and, pro- we're going to provide for people's economic needs as well as much as we can, uh, so that people have a reason to kind of uh, you know, move away from their support for the government towards their support for us. So Solidarity, so Solidarity focuses you know, uses the, you know, their their failure uh, to achieve sort of immediate political change um, to really focus on those kind of movement building activities over the course of about you know subsequent kind of seven years, and then in sort of 1988, when you know political incentives have changed both within Poland and in sort of Poland's external ally in the Soviet Union, Solidarity is able to sort of rise back to the surface. Organize a lot of strikes and, and sort of force the Polish government to negotiate.
0: That's a really good example of what Erica Chenoweth talks about as uh, parallel institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, kind of in that same area of the world, especially as we're kind of um, starting to get ready to kind of wrap up here, wanted to ask you a little bit about the prospects for democratization in Belarus, which have seen a lot of civil resistance campaigns right now. And we're seeing that effort, assuming if they are capable of of bringing lukashenko down how do you feel in terms of the uh the elements that you look at in terms of mobilization and maximalism how do you feel that belarus the prospects for them to succeed towards democracy are
1: mm. yeah i mean it's a really it's a really interesting question um but yeah, and of course you know there's that in, very big initial question of whether they're able to sort of initiate a, a political transition which I would say I'm I'm somewhat optimistic about, uh, but certainly a lot of a lot of uncertainty around that. So during the transition, um, I would say I'm also fairly optimistic uh, about the prospects for, you know, probably I mean at least significant a significant degree of democratization um, in Belarus. And there are there are a few reasons for that. Um, First, I think they've shown that there there is a really sort of powerful there are very powerful mobilization structures there that. Perhaps people were were discounting before you know this kind of massive wave of protests. Um, so, but whether that's uh, kind of um, public sector workers um, or or opposition political parties, I think those may be those may sort of serve as kind of the, the foundation for, for continued continued civic mobilization. Um, and there are again, I, I'm not a Belarus expert as well, uh, but I would say you know there from my sort of reading of the case, there seem to be very sort of relatively few um, axes of contention that could turn into a a really severe maximalist struggle uh, during the transition period. Um, There seems to be a fair amount of consensus uh, within, I mean, both political elites um, and Belarusian society more broadly um, about the shape of what a a future Belarus would look like. a potential except, I mean, a potential exception to that, that, you know, we've seen as a, a very powerful and a destructive force in, in other cases in the region, um, namely Ukraine, uh, would be, you know, the, the, the degree of alignment either with Russia or the West. Um, and so that, you know, that could be one potential source of, of sort of maximalist contention back and forth that might undermine a democratic transition. Uh, of course, you know, the role of Russia here, uh, is, is really crucial. Um, and, um, depending on what, uh, what Vladimir Putin decides he wants to do, um, that can, that is also likely to have a pretty significant impact on how a transition in Belarus, um, unfolded. Uh, and then I'm also, I would say, you know, there's a, there's a finding from, um, the sociologist Ali Khadivar uh, who finds that, uh, civil resistance campaigns that are fairly, sh- that are fairly short, uh, tend to lead to less democratization and one, and civil resistance campaigns that last for a long time, before you know, before leading to, to a transition, tend to lead to more democracy. Uh, his argument there is that um, that tends to, you know, a longer campaign allows for more sort of institutions to be built that can then maintain mobilization and maintain accountability through the transition. Um, and so I think you know the fact that the the current mobilization in Belarus has been fairly short that would be another maybe potentially um, you know potentially problematic uh, source. But there also I mean. There is, but uh, there are some internal reasons for optimism. Also, I mean, external reasons for optimism: a relatively high level of, of economic development, um, you know, a lot of sort of democratic neighbors, who, uh, with the exception of Russia, uh, a lot of democratic neighbors who are who are interested in promoting democracy um, in Belarus. Um, and so those are also you know factors that that tend to make sort of democratization more likely. So I would say overall, I'm I'm fairly optimistic, uh, but with some uh, some important caveats.
0: Before we, just for a final question here, the um, your role right now is with, here, let me make sure I get this right, United States Institute of Peace. Is that right? Okay. Um, can you just briefly describe, uh, your? Uh, obviously a lot of people that I interview um, are professors. Your role is a little bit different, and some people I think would find that very exciting, the fact that you're... Um, working for uh, an organization, and can you briefly describe what they do? And since you actually do sometimes interact with people on the ground, can you give one example that you're very excited about that you've had at least some conversations with the people uh, involved through your current role?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a really fascinating, that's a really great question. Um, so, uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, is a, a nonpartisan institute that was established by Congress, uh, back in the 80s. Um, we have, we pursue, uh, a number of different avenues, uh, both in terms of research and practice, uh, related to peace building. Um, my specific role, uh, is as part of our program on nonviolent action. Uh, that focuses on nonviolent resistance campaigns, uh, as we've been talking about for the, for the last hour. Uh, and my specific program, we do, uh, basically three things. Um, uh, we do applied research, uh, we do training and education, um, and we do policy engagement. Um, so, uh, I'm, my background is, is as an academic, um, I, I thought I was also gonna be a professor about this time in my career, uh, but that didn't, uh, that didn't end up happening, but, uh, I still very much, I mean, I work as a as a researcher, uh, doing similar kinds of research projects uh on nonviolent resistance uh, as ones that I was doing uh when I was in academia. Uh and uh one you know really exciting part of being being in an institution like USIP uh is that you know we're sort of we're empowered to pursue that research, uh, but then also uh to really sort of directly apply that research uh to um you know, to to movements that are happening that are happening on the ground, um, and so I think in in particular, uh, I've really uh, I've really enjoyed getting to uh, participate in and be a part of um, our sort of training and education efforts. Uh, we have a training curriculum called Synergizing Nonviolent Action and Peacebuilding, uh, or SNAP, um, and we've done uh, we've done SNAP workshops uh, all across the world uh, in many different contexts in uh, Latin America, in Sudan. Uh, in, in South Sudan, in Afghanistan, um, and, you know, I think getting to, uh, you know, getting to talk through what can often seem uh, like sort of abstract academic principles uh, about uh, political change, uh, getting to actually talk through those with grassroots organizers uh, is something that is, you know, really, really exciting um, and, and really compelling for me. Uh, so, uh, if there are, I, I know uh, this year in particular, uh, it is a, a very challenging academic job market out there. Um, and so if there are you know, other, you know, uh, young researchers out there who are interested in nonviolent action, in peace building, um, in, uh, in these kinds of, in these kinds of issues, uh, I would uh, encourage you to, to think about USIP. Um, it's a, it is a great place to be. We do really, we do really great research um, and also you know, have some really great opportunities uh, for, for direct uh, you know, direct engagement in, in shaping outcomes in some of these sort of most challenging phases.
0: Hey, can you give us uh, just a quick example of somebody that you did work with through the training process uh, program or something else that was uh, pretty exciting or that was maybe different for you?
1: You know, I, I think I'm actually, um, I'm going to... Uh, did I go I'm, too far? <laughs> no, no, well, I'm just, I... I uh, have to be concerned about the the safety and security of uh, of some of our partners, and because uh, in many fair, cases they are you know they are working in in contexts where there is a, there's a lot of political repression, um, and so that's uh, that's the only reason why I'm I'm, I'm hesitant uh, to be a little bit to be sort of more specific uh, about the the people that you know sort of some of the grassroots activists on the ground that we've been directly engaged with.
0: Well, hopefully in a few years, once you've got you know you've been there for a while we can talk about some of the ones that you worked with that were successful.
1: Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, we have, we've uh-huh. done, we have done a lot of work in Sudan and that work sort of predates the, the revolution in 2018, 19. Um, oh, great. And, uh, and so that was, um, that, that was certainly something that the people on my team were, were very excited about uh, when you know we saw kind of, political change happening in Sudan and a situation where you know, people who we had worked with in the past who had been, you know, facing really severe degrees of oppression um, are now you know, able to operate sort of much more, much more openly um, and, and able to kind of continue to push for, for sort of real political change uh, and sustained political change uh, in their, in their country.
0: That, that's gotta be just really cool just to be interacting with people that are that much at the forefront of of things that are changing world history.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it certainly it's a it's a real privilege, and it's uh, I would say it's also it's a responsibility that that I and I would say every you know, everyone at USIP takes very seriously. Um, that you know we you know our, our mandate is is, about, is to to share information that can help build peace, um, and so we really like we we think really carefully uh, about um making sure that our our partners are like our partners are not being put in danger um by you know by the kinds of interactions that we have with them by the kinds of training uh that we give to them uh, and that everything you know, and that everything we're doing um is is focused on that goal of how can we have you know more peaceful inclusive stable societies uh over over the long term um i think as you know as some, someone coming from an academic background as well you know, I always, I'm, always, I'm always trying to be very intentional about uh, not just saying what I know, but saying what I don't know. Um, and saying, you know, okay, here's what, you know, here's what the statistics can tell us about you know, this particular question, but there's a lot that we don't know about this. And, and in every case, and this is something that, you know, we say to, to every activist that we talk to, um, you are the expert when it comes to your country. You know, we can maybe give some, we can maybe sort of give some insights about, you know, broad global trends. Um, but when it comes to, you know, really what needs to happen, like what needs to happen in your particular case, you're the, like, you are the expert. Um, and it would be, it would be deeply inappropriate for us to say, like, okay, this is what you need to do, um, in order to, you know, uh, make more sort of peaceful change happen, uh, happen in your society.
0: Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to me today. This is a great conclusion to um, the past uh, the past three episodes that I've put together for Resistance, Revolution, Democracy, where we can kind of end on a hopeful note that the civil resistance can produce meaningful democratic changes if it's you know if it's done right, if the people remain involved, and if they remain open to um, democratic values in the end. So I think that's that's a great place to kind of end at this point. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, Thanks so much for the invitation, Justin. It It was a real pleasure to have this chat with you. All
0: right, thanks. The Democracy Paradox is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank the team at Oxford University Press who provided a copy of From Descent to Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife Julie and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.